Good morning. I'm glad you are here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for um, your uh, support during this time of our move. I will announce that we moved into our new home on Tuesday. Uh, we are mostly settled. It's going to take weeks. You know the tiring thing about moving is learning where the light switches are in the middle of the night? Getting that kind of pattern down, that automatic thing. Anyway, would you please check and make sure your phone is in the off position? And uh, thank you to Lauren and to Tim to make this live stream possible. And again, if you're within 25 miles of here, you could be here. It's better. Um, it is better. So let's do what we always do at the beginning. Let's begin in some silence. Just do whatever is necessary for you to do to be here. Just be in the room. Our goal is to be present in this space, to be open, and to just be here, which is a lot more difficult than it sounds. So since Thursday is Thanksgiving, I remind you that a great daily spiritual practice is to keep a gratitude journal. List the things that you're grateful for that made it possible for you to be here. I'm grateful for this time. I'm grateful for you, for St. Paul's, for our ability to be part of this, whether in person or online, and for all that has made it possible for us to have this time together. So um, the last several weeks, we've been using this adaptation of mine of an old Irish prayer. This is something I'm doing every day. I recommend it to you. You can take a picture of it and adapt it for yourself if you like. Grace be in my head and in my thinking. Grace be in my eyes and in my seeing. Grace be in my ears and in my hearing. Grace be in my mouth and in my speaking. Grace be in my heart and in my understanding and joyfully. Grace be in my end and in my departing. So it's a good, it's a good prayer to have. Um, my hope is that you'll find what you're looking for here today and that we honor in ordinary life the trinity of love, honesty, and freedom. And so that's what we're about. I, uh, I want to say also, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. And I just want to remind you, I'm going to be really brief about this because I don't want to take any time from our speaker. Jan Phillips will be here the first full weekend after the first of the year. And since we will not be meeting on December the 25th or January the 1st, I want you to help get the word out about that. Um, so, um, Pam has cards that you can get at the back of the room or you can see her directly and get them to pass around to people. We're just trying to, there's Pam, we're holding the cards up right now so you can get that. Um, Jan Phillips is a woman I met because of Michael Moorwood and she wrote this book among other things. She's written several things. She has a daily meditation that goes out every Sunday that uh, is real good. One of her books is called Finding the Own Ramp for Your Spiritual Path. So that's pretty cool, and she's got a lot of things. She is a lesbian woman who is severely wounded by the church, but did not give up on her vision and passion of doing something in the name of the sacred mystery that she serves. So she's enthusiastic and full of fire, and I hope you will not only attend that, but read the book. I know the book groups are reading the book. Everybody I've talked to who's read the book or seen her on YouTube has been really juiced up about, about her. So um, today, very briefly, I want to introduce my friend Bill Martin. Bill and I have known each other since 1967, when you got appointed as professor of sociology at Rice, and then you and Patricia began to attend Covenant, where I was pastor at the time. And uh, if I were to tell you all the things, the accolades, the articles, the publications, the books that Bill has written, we'd be here for a long time. The one that I will mention is this one, which is the authorized biography of Billy Graham, A Prophet with Honor, which um, 
you had to redo right after his death or add an addendum to, right, about that. So I, as I said, I could take a long time to give you accolades about Bill, but here's one that I have never acknowledged publicly that I want to do. Bill Martin ran interference for me with having uh, and getting me the ability to have a sabbatical at Harvard. Had it not been for you, I would not have done that. And I'm very grateful to you for that. That was a life-changing event for me. He, Bill's a graduate of Harvard and a good friend of Harvey Cox's. And he um, co contacted Harvey. Harvey contacted me. And then one thing led to another. And I got to Merrill Fellowship to go to Harvard. And I'm grateful to you for that. Thank you very much. And I am so grateful that you've come to speak to us today. Everybody, Dr. Bill Martin. <clears throat> Now is it working? Good, good. Some say it's working, some say it's not. I'm not sure I can turn it up here. Okay. Green light's on. That, now it's working. I can tell it's working better now. Okay, fine, fine. It is true that uh, Bill Curley and I have been friends for a, for a long time. When we first moved to Houston, um, we were having a little trouble finding a church. We would say to our children, we don't, we don't really believe this. We don't really believe what we're saying today. And one of our sons says, why do we go to a church we don't believe in? <laughs> so I said, well, we do have a responsibility to them. So I started asking around. Um, and. Niels Nielsen in the religion department, who was, I believe, a member of this church, uh, he was a friend of mine, and so I, I said, Niels, where can I go to hear some good preaching? He said, well, Bill Curley's the best preacher in town. And so I took him up on that, and that turned out to be, that turned out to be right, I think. Or certainly, if, as, as Dizzy Dean used to say about pictures, I might not have been the best, but I was up there amongst them. So <laughs> I think we could be safe with that, and I do appreciate uh, uh, Bill Curley's done other favors for me. It's also good to see uh, 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 Terry. <laughs> no, Terry, but but Rob Landis. Who, uh, Rob Landis has been a friend. Was at Covenant when I first came there, or shortly afterward, and has played at the receptions of at least a couple of our children, and is one of my our very favorite uh, musicians and friends. So, in any case, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about the, uh, the, the, and it's something I've been working on for some time now, is Christian nationalism. Uh, as the United States has grown more ethnically and religiously diverse in recent decades, calls for the nation to return to its allegedly Christian essence have become increasingly common and increasingly vociferous. In 2002, Alabama Chief Justice and later unsuccessful Senate candidate uh, Roy Moore said, in homes and schools across the land, it's time for Christians to take a stand. This is not a nation established on the principles of Buddha or Hinduism. Our faith is not Islam. What we follow is not the Quran, but the Bible. This is a Christian nation. Well, Roy Moore is not alone in making that, that assertion. Uh, amateur historian and Texas-based GOP activist David Barton has called separation of church and state a myth. Our founding fathers intended that this nation should be a Christian nation, not because all who lived in it were Christians, but because it was founded on and would be governed and guided by Christian principles. More recently, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said the founders built the American government around the word of God. When we let those who try to shout us down and take away our rights tell us we are not a Christian nation, we must stand and we must fight. Politics is about building the kingdom for God. Patrick has often claimed that the government should be biblically based. John Hagee, the pastor of a 22,000 member Crossroad Cornerstone Church in San Antonio with 22,000 members that hear on a TV sermon said, this country was not built for atheists and not by atheists, but by Christian people who believed in the word of God. And to any atheist who might have been watching, he said, 
If our belief in God offends you, move. Uh, David Barton has often been a featured speaker at that church. Michael Flynn, about a year ago, November 13th, 2021, at a Reawaken American Tour event at Cornerstone Church, uh, former Trump National Security Advisor General Michael Flynn, who was subpoenaed shortly after that by a House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack, said, if we are going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion, one nation under God, and one religion under God. Now, these assertions exemplify a religio-political ideology known as Christian nationalism or Christian Americanism. Uh, the basics of this, the, their to learn about the basics of this, I recommend some, basics, some books to you. One is by Catherine Stewart, the journalist. It's called The Power Worshippers, 2019. She said, the first thing to know is that Christian nationalism is not a religion. It is a political ideology, a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population and for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. Religious nationalism makes use of religion but it is not trying to achieve religious or cultural aims. It is trying to achieve political power. And it is an anti-democratic movement because it says the foundation of legitimate government in the US is a strict interpretation of a particular religion. Sociologists Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry wrote the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. This is based on large public surveys and has gotten a great deal of attention. They, they make a similar point. We define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework. It is a collection of myths and traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealize and advocate for a fusion between Christianity and American civic life. It idealizes a mythic society in which real Americans, white, native-born, mostly Protestants, maintain control over access to society's social, cultural, and political institution, and others remain in their proper place. It therefore appreciates strong boundaries to separate us from them, preserving privilege for its rightful re recipients while equating criminality, violence, inferiority, and threat with racial and religious outsiders. It includes assumptions of nativism, white supremacy, patriarchy, authoritarianism, militarism, and it sanctifies and justifies violence in the service of what they deem to be the greater good or even God's plan. It is a key part of explaining Americans' attitudes and support for Donald Trump. Even though Trump made no real attempt to be personally religious or pious, over and over he would say, we need to defend Christianity. They're coming after you. We need to defend your culture and this culture. So key to being an American is being Christian in this great Christian nation. Dr. David Brockman of Fort Worth, a non-resident scholar in the religion and public policy at the Baker Institute, which I have the honor to be a director for about two more months. We're getting a successor. I say, I, it's time. I'm at 84. I haven't quite reached my expiration point date, <laughs> but I am past my best if used by date. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I am, I am pleased to be uh, having a, a very worthy successor. Um, Christian nationalism is a potent political force. Um, my, I've done work on this, my book, With God on Our Side, The Rise of the Religious Right in America. It was the first in 1996, updated in 2004, which was the companion book for a PBS miniseries. Uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, this ideology was one of the major tributaries feeding the rise of the religious right. And its core tenets later came to dominate the Republican Party. Religious right leaders such as Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, and Pat Robertson summoned America to return to its alleged Christian roots in the hope that the United States might become a Christian nation once again. They sought to realize this goal by electing candidates at all levels of government who would pass laws in sync with a Christian vision for America including legislation supporting school prayer, promoting creationism in public classrooms, banning abortion, and generally opposing diversity and pluralism. Ronald Reagan made a calculated uh, out outreach to Christian conservatives in 1980. 
when he said, I know you can't approve of me, but I approve of you. And that, that did it. Uh, frequent re references during the 1980 and 1984 campaigns in, to, in the U.S. as a nation under God. He criticized Supreme Court rulings banning school prayer and Bible readings. Repeatedly called for Congress to pass a constitutional amendment allowing school prayer. The Republican Party became increasingly Christianized in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition strongly influenced the 1992 Republican National Convention, pushing through additions to the party platform refer referencing our country's Judeo-Christian heritage. By the early 2000, uh, thousands, religious right activists had a strong influence in the Republican Party, the House of Representatives, and the Senate and seemed well on their way toward transforming the United States into their version of Christian America. For instance, presidential hopeful John McCain, in a 2008 address at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, declared that the Constitution established the United States of America as a Christian nation. Now I want to talk about something called prostate, prostate, <laughs> prostate. I have a book called My Prostate in Me, uh, and so it, is, uh, it, is, it comes to mind more quickly than, than, than some other things. But this is, and it is prostate, not prostrate. But uh, uh, Project Blitz, Blitz, which has recently been named Freedom for All. But this is a, a, uh, it's a major way that Christian nationalism has made its, uh, way, made its presence felt nationwide in recent uh, years through this, the the work of Project Blitz, which is a concerted effort to push state legislators to enact measures that recognize the place of Christian principles in our nation's history and heritage, and that promote biblical values concerning marriage and sexuality. Project Blitz was or, or, or launched in 2015 under the auspices of the Virginia-based Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation in partnership with David Barton's Wall Builders Organization and the National Legal Foundation, of which Barton is a board member. As David Brockman has noted, it began as a covert campaign for conservative Christian dominion over law and public policy. It has become far more visible recently thanks to a good bit of national media attention to it. This organization organizes prayer caucuses in state legislatures and say, come and be part of the prayer caucus. And it's hard in a state legislature particularly to say, well, I don't want to do that. Do you pray? Well, sometime, but private. Well, if you want to be a real prayer person, prayer partner, well, then you come with us. And the, the politics of that group are very tight. Pol Project Blitz has published legislative playbooks since 2018. These documents lay out a, ga a game plan for promoting Christian Americanist agenda in state legislatures and they include model bills that state legislatures can customize for their own legislative context. Blitz is an apt term. The idea is to overwhelm state legislatures with the bills passed on centrally manufactured legislation. It is in its guidebook for state legislators and other allies, model legislation is grouped into three categories according to the anticipated difficulty of passage. The first category comprises symbolic gestures to promote America's Judeo-Christian heritage, like bills to mandate posting In God We Trust in public schools and emblazoning it on as many moving objects as possible, such as police cars. Also to require that the Bible be taught in public schools and allow public school teachers to promote religion in their class to their students. The second, more difficult category for Project Blitz consists of bills intended to promote the teaching and celebration of Christianity in public schools and elsewhere, to exalt it and the Bible above other religions and beliefs. These bills are a means of spreading the message that Christian conservatives are the real Americans and everybody else is here by invitation only. Third, finally, Project Blitz proponents hope to create broad exemptions to existing law so that their narrow set of evangelical Christian beliefs can be used to limit the rights of others. These include uh, bills that would allow or 
uh, will allow private businesses, government employees, and other entities to discriminate in ways that have direct consequences for the rights of women, LGBTQ people, minority religions, the non-religious, and other marginalized groups, provided they do so in accordance with sincerely held religious beliefs. They also allow religiously affiliated adoption and foster care agencies to discriminate against kids and prospective uh, parents if they are not of the right religion. Other organizations are still pumping out more despotic and dangerous religious bills and new organizations want to join the fray. The National Association of Christian Lawmakers has created in, uh, has the explicit political aim of filling public offices with Christians and pushing Christian legislation into law. Like Project Blitz, it wants to provide model bills to legislators and help conservative Christians get elected. It adopted the Texas Heartbeat Bill as the first piece of model legislation it would put its full weight behind. Catherine Stewart, from the book I've mentioned, observes that these efforts have little to do with what most Americans would call religious freedom. This is just the latest attempt by religious extremists to use the coercive powers of government to secure a privileged position in society for their version of Christianity. Andrew Whitehead notes that the Americans who embrace Christian nationalism have little interest in interfaith dialogue in trying to find areas of compromise or working together. Christian nationalism is about creating more of a tribal identity of us versus a them. So in many ways, Whitehead says, it's anti-democratic. It really has no interest in compromise because, again, they're loading, locating their desired outcomes in the will of the Christian God, so they really aren't interested in any sort of give and take. Whitehead also notes that there are high degrees of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia among the strongest supporters of Christian nationalism. They are interested in drawing boundaries around who is a true American and to exclude others from equal participation in civil society and in the culture. As I said recently, this, was, this Project Blitz was renamed Freedom for All. If good with, with that, kind of, that kind of work, too. but Blitz is its real, I think it's, I'm, I'm still sticking with Blitz. One of the more remarkable features of this is to, has to do with the mood of its organizers. They're a very upbeat crowd. One leader said, we have this window of opportunity right now. I think we're all feeling it. We believe this is just the beginning. Since they played a key role, and she said that in about 19, 20, in 2018, since they had played a key role in putting President Trump in power, that wasn't foolish optimism. A Catherine student, Stewart said, what Christian nationalists know, and many of us have yet to learn, is that you don't need a majority to hijack a modern democracy. You just need a sizable minority marinating in its grievances, willing to act as a block and impervious, impervious to correction by fact or argument. Uh, Christian nationalism is is active force in Texas. This has a visible uh, presence in Texas politics in recent decades, particularly in the Republican Party, which has controlled all three branches of the state government since 2003. The 2020 Texas GOP platform asserts that Judeo-Christian principles form the basis of America's legal, political, and economic systems, and it pledged to use the party's influence toward a return to the original intent of the First Amendment and toward dispelling the myth, the myth of separation of church and state. My colleague uh, David Brockman has studied and written about Christian Americanism <coughs> on the State Board of uh, how the, the State Board of Education, how this was on that 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 force in that uh, in that board shaped the public school studies social studies curriculum to promote an overly positive emphasis on Christianity and a pronounced imbalance in the coverage of reli other religions. In Texas, the key figure is Dart David Barton, whom I've already mentioned. He is a, is a Lido town-based uh, nonprofit wall, bower, wall builder, is one of the power centers of Christian Americanism in Texas and nationally. Wall Builders develops materials, books, magazines, radio, TV, podcasts, speeches, to educate the public concerning the periods in our country's history when its laws and policies 
were firmly rooted in biblical principles. That's a quote. <coughs> Barton is a, an ideological entrepreneur and a one-man heritage industry. Um, though his claims have been widely discredited as inaccurate, even dishonest, he remains influential within the religious right and the GOP and has been called the house historian of the Tea Party. Barton's 2012 book, The Jefferson Lies, which argues, among other things, that a third president did not intend church and state to be separate, was withdrawn by the publisher, the religious publisher, Thomas Nelson, after widespread complaints about its inaccuracy, and it has the dubious honor of being named the least credible history book in print. <laughs> in a, tw a 20 to 2012 poll by the History News Network. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said the founders built the American government around the word of God. When we let those who try to shout us down and take away our rights and tell us we're not a Christian nation, we must stand and we must fight. Politics is about building the kingdom for God and government policy should be biblically based. Ted Cruz has written, if, if, if our nation's leaders are elected by unbelievers, is it any reason, any re uh, I cannot do a Ted Cruz imitation. If I, if, if I could, I don't think I would. Uh, is it any wonder they would not, do not reflect our values? If the body of Christ arises, if Christians simply show up and vote biblical values, we can restore our nation. More locally, Stephen Hotze and the conservative Republicans of Texas PAC, Houston area doctor, influential through his activism, endorsements, and contributions, unyielding, occasionally strident opponent of abortion and public acceptance of homosexuality. In a video, uh, in a 1990 video, he said, there is no neutrality. Civil government will either reflect biblical Christianity or it will reflect, reflect anti-Christian positions. Court Hotze is strongly anti-gay. He said, they, homosexuals, hate God. They hate God's word. They hate Christ. They hate anything that's good and wholesome and right. They want to pervert everything. Dr. Robert Jeffries, who's the pastor of the 13,000-member First Baptist Church in, in Dallas, has written 25 books, has a daily radio program. He's an adjunct at Dallas Theological Seminary. He uses David Barton's arguments, but he says, diversity and pluralism are just euphemisms for what God calls idolatry. God doesn't celebrate religious diversity. You shall have no other gods before me. Pastor David Welch, the founder of the U.S. Pastor Council, Texas Pastor, Pastor Council and the Houston Area Pastor Council, is a vigorous opponent of LGBTQ rights. He wants to work to bring all of American life and society and state to bow before the feet of King Jesus and allow his principles to guide all areas of life as we had operating in early America. He also said, Democrats aren't just godless, they're pretty much Nazis. Now, <clears throat> I want to make some, some final points here. Um, I've had a, in a, uh, have a paper on the Baker Institute website called Re Secular State Religious People, the American Model. And these are what I'm saying here is drawn from that. The, there's a claim regarding the claim that um, the founders intended to establish a Christian nation. The Constitution is one of the world's great models of... Uh, monuments to religious tolerance. Uh, I was reading it last night, just by the fireside. My wife was knitting a flag. It's something that... Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the lone reference to religion in the original Constitution before the Bill of Rights is in Article 6. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. At the time, the constitutions of nearly all the 13 states, or colonies, included religious tests, generally requiring that public officials be Protestant Christians, sometimes that they acknowledge the divine inspiration of scripture and profess belief in the Trinity. Article six was a significant departure from the existing practice, but it was adopted easily and apparently without much discussion. Constitutional scholar William Lee Miller has written that in the framing of Article VI, the new nation was electing to be non-religious in its civil life. There is no mention of God 
in the Constitution. A group of Massachusetts uh, and New Hampshire ministers complained to George Washington that no explicit acknowledgement of the true only God and Jesus Christ who he sent has been inserted somewhere in the Magna Carta of our country. Others complained that a Turk, a Jew, a papist, and what is worse than all, a universalist may be president of the United States. It was reported that when asked why the Constitution fails to mention God, Alexander Hamilton had said, we forgot. <laughs> but but the, the omission of God was neither an oversight or in the minds of the framers a slight. This, that gathering of grave young men contained some remarkable thinkers and fine writers. Had they wanted to establish a Christian nation, they could have stated the matter quite plainly. Of course, the first sentence of the <clears throat> amendment of the first sentence of the First Amendment to the Constitution was, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Then, <clears throat> less than 10 years after the ratification of the Constitution, a treaty with Tripoli, the Muslim region of North Africa, signed in 1797 when John Adams was president, provides an official reminder of the founders' intent. Article 11 of the treaty states, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the law, religion, or tranquility of Muslim, Muslims. The second claim of Amer Christian Americanism, that Christianity should have a privileged position over other religions and people, manifests itself in myriad ways, some of which provide clear examples of the inequality of faiths that their proponents uh, assume. Consider the continued support for displaying the Ten Commandments in public schools, courthouses, other government businesses, despite the Supreme Court's having ruled such displays unconstitutional. However one regards the wisdom of the commandments, several violate the principle of religious neutrality. You shall have no other gods before me. According to a 2018 Pew Research poll, 44% of Americans do not believe in or worship the God as described in the Bible. Jews and Muslims do not believe in a Trinitarian God of the classic Christian creeds. <coughs> Hindus believe in a plurality of gods, and Buddhists do not believe in a personal God. Graven images forbidden by the Second Commandment play a significant role in Hindu, Hindu Buddhist, and Catholic observance. Only a small majority of a minority of Americans keep the Sabbath day holy, and if coveting should somehow be eliminated, it would cripple capitalism. <laughs> it is, it's common for Christian nationalists to advocate restoring Judeo-Christian teachings and values, since both are seen as drawn from the Bible. In so doing, they're ignoring the fact that Jews do not regard the Christian Testament as having religious authority over them, and they are assuming assigning an inferior legal and social status to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and unbelievers. These politicians know they are preaching to a receptive choir. According to a 2017 Pew Research poll, about a third, 32% of Americans say it is very important for a person to be a Christian in order to be considered truly American. That figure rises to 57% among white evangelicals. There is considerable Irony in that assertion, since according to other Pew polls, adherents to the four major non-Christian groupings, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims, consistently rank higher in socioeconomic status than the members of most Christian denominations, indicating an acceptance of mainstream American values and contrib contributing importantly to the nation's health and wealth. Hindus, for example, have the highest education level of all religious groups with 77% holding college degrees, 10 percentage points above Unitarian Universalists, 18 above Jews, 21 above Episcopalians, 30 above Presbyterians, PCUSA, and Buddhists, 33% above atheists and agnostics, 38 above Muslims, 40 above United Methodists, got in there somewhere, 50, 
51 above uh, Roman Catholics and 58 points above Southern Baptists and Churches of Christ. Buddhists lag Hindus by 30 points, but are essentially equal to Presbyterians, PCUSA, and United Church of Christ. Muslims at 30 39% are higher than all but Jews, Episcopalians, PCUSA, UCC, and Orthodox Christians. Further, nearly, all of Hin nearly half of Hindu adults <coughs> and almost a third of Jewish adults hold postgraduate degrees. Buddhists, 20%, and Muslims, 17%, lag a bit behind but lead mainline Protestants, 14%, Catholics, 10%, and Evangelical Protestants, 7%. Not surprisingly, measures of household income tell a similar story. Jews are at the top with 44% pulling in more than $100,000 annually. Hindus, Episcopalians, and PCUSA follow at 36, 35, and 32%. Atheists, agnostics, and UCC are essentially tied at 30 and 29 points. Evangelical Lutherans and United Methodists are close behind at 26 points, trailed by Unitarian Universalists at 23, Muslims at 20, Catholics at 19, Southern Baptists and Churches of Christ at 16, Assemblies of God at 10. Now since Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Unitarians, and assorted unbelievers or nuns do not subscribe to Judeo-Christian beliefs and values, are they not to be regarded as equal under the Constitution? free not only to practice their own religion or none at all without hindrance or opprobrium, but also freed of obligation to support through their taxes religious beliefs and practices not their own. The United States has had long had two, two mottos, in God we trust, after appearing on, uh, after appearing on most cons, uh, coins, minted after the Civil War was made the official motto in 1956 at the height of the Cold War with the communist and atheistic uh, USSR. The First Amendment absolutely permits wholehearted endorsement of the official motto by those who wish to affirm it, affirm it, but the same amendment also exempts them from that or any other religious profession. The founders of the of, who created the Constitution provided an earlier and alternative motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one that was made that was made part of the great symbol great seal of the united states in 1782 and included on many coins and currency ever since this motto originally symbolized the federal nature of the new of the new country but it has long been understood to reflect the remarkable and laudable diversity of this country it is also faithful to the stipulation in article 6 of the constitution no religious test will ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The separation of church and state was a great gift to this country, one worth honoring and preserving. You may want to thank God for it, but you don't have to. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, okay. I suppose so. Can we have a mic? So who has a question for Dr. Martin? Here's, here's one right here. Valerie. Thank you. I'm too young to remember um, the election of President Kennedy as a Catholic. Um, was this involved in really um, all of the things that were done against Mitt Romney? as a Mormon coming in? Oh, sure, I think so. Not as much as it was against Kennedy. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I must uh, confess that uh, the first time I voted for a president, I was the first year at Harvard Divinity School, and I voted for Nixon because Kennedy was a Catholic. Mm. Uh, Kennedy was also uh, a um, Harvard graduate, and by the time the election happened, I was for Kennedy. And, uh, but I, we all sin, and so I acknowledge, acknowledge that, that, uh, that prejudice. I didn't think we all had to kiss the Pope's toe, but it just, I'd been brought up to think this was a bad, that, that this was a bad idea. Uh, yes, I think Mitt Romney, uh, it's interesting, while we're talking about bad things, uh, one of the turning points in the Kennedy election, in the Kennedy, the Kennedy uh, race, 
what happened at First Baptist Church, or either the First Baptist Church or South Main Baptist Church, I think it was First Baptist, when Kennedy uh, was approached by a group of, of a, I think it was mostly Baptist preachers, but Houston preachers, and they asked him about, are you going to celebrate, or, you know, recognize the, <laughs> whatever Baptist preachers talk, uh, of the separation of church and state, and he said, I, he, Kennedy gave a very good answer about that, well, I hope we will see that be the truth. And it, turned, it, it changed a lot of minds, that particular instance that happened very, very near here. Uh, yes, uh, and of course, Mitt Romney, uh, people like Franklin Graham, not Billy Graham, but I don't know that Billy Graham ever said that, but Franklin Graham said Mormons are not a Christian, that is not part of Christianity. I'm sure it played a, it played a role. Yeah, I have, I have a question. Um, uh, if um, if this blitz or whatever is determined to pass laws that are Christian, what do you do about the fact that half of the Christian churches are pro-choice, the other half are not? Half of the Christian churches are anti-death penalty, very anti, and others are not. So which which Christian law are they going to be passing? Well. I think, I, of course, of course, that's a quite relevant question. I think that Christians have a right to, to to believe. They have a right to participate in politics. They have a right to say these are my these are my beliefs. You do not have a right. I think it's not appropriate to say because I think the Bible says if that trumps other other, other opinions, that that, that, that the, the Bible has no special standing. It has great influence, of course, but it has no special standing in the court, in the, in the, it should not have in the passing of legislation. Of course it does have. So how do you respond to that? You respond to it in the way that the, the religious right responded in organizing that, said, all right, we gotta get organized. You gotta, these are the mundane kinds of things, but the way, the, part of the ways the religious right got really going strong was having, I don't think you can do this now in churches, but having voter registration right out, right out in the lobby. Can, that's not, has that just been, is it still possible to do that in the lobby? I They're thought, trying to make it difficult. Okay, all right. But, uh, but you, you, you have to get organized, you have to vote, uh, and that, that's got to do the tough work of political organization, and, and there is, there is there's also this that makes it hard for people of, of a, of a, that don't share those views. <clears throat> the religious right has the advantage of having a much more concentrated, coherent message that is r repeated daily or repeated weekly. It is uh, bolstered by a lot of television, radio, public media publications of various sorts, and then reinforced by people meeting together on a regular basis with their friends, with their co-religionists, and being having that come from them regularly in, from, the, from the pulpit of people with a very, you know, a very focused view. Liberals have nothing like that. And uh, it, so there, there is, a, whether you consider yourself a liberal or not, there, there's just the fact that if you don't live with you with those views, it is, it's, it's, it's harder to do. But you've got to be, you've got to be organized. You've got to do, you've got to do the work. Uh, Bill, I have in mind notes that I ran across um, a few weeks ago doing some research. Uh, the pastor of the Second Baptist Church here saying something from the pulpit very negative about Democrats in his sermon and um, is that uh, am I to think then that um, the Democrats in that congregation probably got their feelings hurt when he did that or are there no Democrats there? Uh, Very few. I, I expect it's not overrun with Democrats. <laughs> okay. They would be, they would be a, a silent minority okay. perhaps. I would be, that would be my guess. I, mean, the, I don't it, it, it would not be a surprise uh, for most people who've been there very long to, to, to hear mm -hmm. that, that view. Um. I, have a, I have a question slash comment, and that is that do you think that the Christian nationalists in their ignorance are aware of the fact that nationalism 
and Nazism come from exactly the same root. Hitler formed his party vis-a-vis -vis my German background, which I learned, and that is that it was the Nationalistische Sozialistische Partei. So a Nazi is a diminutive form of nationalist. You add an I onto somebody's name, and it's, it, it's, it's, Yes, it, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I, long story short, long story short, they call the <clears throat> Democrats Nazis when in fact they are the Nazis, historically, because that's where the term originated. And do you really think they're aware of this? Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. But, but there are, I will say that there are some in this, this movement who have who've decided they prefer to be called Christian American, Christian Americanists rather than Christian nationalists, because the, they're, they're, uh, it's, it's not as if there are not crit critiques of that kind of extreme nationalism that, that are, uh, you know, that are, and partly because the opposition to the movement has, has nailed it with, or has labeled it as Christian nationalism, which they've accepted somewhat. But, uh, but I suspect they're not saying, well, this is just like the Nazis. Still, it's a very good idea, you know, Hitler. <laughs> Hitler had many good things to say, you know, so I don't think they're probably doing that. So the whole world is drifting, it seems to me, toward autocracy. Why do you think that, moving to the right? Well, because a lot of the world's moving to the left, and that's making people uncomfortable. I think that there's a lot of the, a lot of the rise of the, of, the, of the religious right or the public right is a feeling of, this, we don't like the way things are going. You know, this, that people, and a lot, of, I think a lot of, I didn't talk much about that, but I think a lot of it, particularly in this country, uh, has to do with race. Yes. There is the, there is just the, uh, uh, I often speak of this as white Christian nationalism, because there aren't many black Christian nationalists. I won't say there are none. But uh, I think there is, and that, so, uh, that it, there is a lot of, a large, huge numbers of people who feel like, uh, we've lost our place. We're, we're not winning the race. I recommend to you a book by Arlie, A-R-L-I-E, Hawkshild, and it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. And she talks, it's a very good book. She spent, she spent um, several parts of two years among very conservative people in southern Louisiana. And she earned their trust. She's an excellent sociologist. She, She's written wonderfully also about women's oppression or the rights of women. But she talks of the image she uses, and I think it has a, it's a, it's a powerful image to me. She said she, she thinks it's not just all on one side and there's crazies here and bad people here and so forth. She, she came to appreciate the, the, these people and they to appreciate her because she was, they were honest with each other. She used the image of a, of a, of a, of a hill, a, a slope, an upward slope, and said, We've been working up best, and then all of a sudden people behind us are moved up even with us, or they're moving ahead, and now one of them is president. <laughs> that, uh, that some things like, like that, that they're, we've, we've lost our way. We're no, longer, we're no longer the honored people. And losing that sense, and then having, having, having in, in a religious sense, having people say, we're losing you, and these people are all, you can match that with sinners. They, they, they believe in being fair to homosexuals, things of that sort, or, or just a number of things that make the, the, the sense of people, there's so much grievance. Just think about how much grievance Donald Trump played to. Just then, and there, there are people who have reason to be aggrieved. We have problems with our economic system, with the inequality. Inequality, I think, is a, is a really serious problem in, in the world. And a lot of that, a lot of the people who are drawn to these movements or who are part of these movements early on are on the bad side of inequality. And so there's, well, things are happening. That's, that, that's, that's what I would say as a, as a short answer, not too short. In the political dialogue, mm -hmm. is there a struggle in terms of funding education because if you maintain uh, a certain percentage of the public that is not well educated, then they can't ascertain 
truth from fiction, uh, lies from reality, and as a result, the Christian right is is keeping Texas, for example, as a poorly educated state compared to other states? Well, uh, the Christian right plays a role in Texas. In, in David Barton has been on the, that I've mentioned, he has been on the boards that have, or the panels that have looked over textbooks and things like that and really knows more about that than I do. But there, uh, I've written about, uh, there's a, there's a podcast that you can, you can find. It's a 10, 10 episode podcast, about half hours a piece, called Teaching Texas. And it deals with this and it deals, I'm, I'm in one of the episodes talking about Mel and Norma Gabler, who were very strong, at, who were one of the first to really have an impact on Texas text, textbooks and how they are chosen. And Texas, when the books are chosen, they're in all Texas public schools because Texas has one of the largest markets. When they are chosen for Texas, they get chosen in many other places as well. And Bar uh, Brockman has pointed out the, the, uh, the things like, for example, downplaying other religions and that, that sort of thing. But, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here a little bit. I, I do that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a privilege of being 84. But uh, um, I, I, I do think that, that there's the, you know, when we, about critical race theory, for example. Another name for cri critical race theory is actual American history. Is what? Ac actual American history. Uh, it, that's, not one, that's not one they use, but, but, but it is, it's a fit. I mean, Slavery was, it, it was a, it's made a tremendous difference for, for centuries. It did happen to talk about that and to say, well, this makes children feel bad. One of my, one of my granddaughters is, is teaching right now, and uh, she's, she's teaching middle school social science, and she's really good at it. But she was teaching about um, a, a a, in, in a class, just within the last couple of months, about the, the uh, people, the, the Western movement, and uh, and well, a little girl says, "What happened? What happened? Went there a lot? Who was was the country empty? No, no, <laughs> many people, Native Americans, and well, what happened to them?" <laughs> she starts talking about it, and uh, this is at St. John's School, and and uh, and uh, one one black student said, "Oh, the truth hurts." <laughs> <laughs> this, this girl was saying, "Oh, that's bad," and another said, "True that." You know, that th this was the this was the first time it wasn't talking about race. Here, it could have been the same kind of perception, but that a lot of children just don't. I, when I think about, we shouldn't make children feel guilty. Well, they, they're not responsible for it, but it did happen, and it did affect a lot of things that go on. It reminded me of a, a person who, at, a student at Wheaton College, which is where Billy Graham went to school, and. Very good school. It's a very good school, but they were a, a student pr protested to the dean or the president who that that he was feeling bad because the ch chapel services were making him feel sinful, <laughs> making him feel bad, and that's what it's for, you know. You know <laughs> that if you this is a this is this is this, you know if it if it fits you well then you if the shoe fits repent. <laughs> hey Bill, thank you very much for being here. Well, thank we you. Appreciate it. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next Sunday. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. Thank you. You're welcome.